Welcome to Deep Broadway, where you get the luxury of listening to your favorites on Broadway wherever you are. With Eli and Ashley. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at ZBroadway and check out our site at zbroadway.com for updates and new episodes. Now please sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hi everyone, thank you so much for listening to Z-Podway. We are here with Brooke Ishibashi. Brooke is a fourth generation Japanese American who is passionate about exploring anti-racism, social, social justice, and transgenerational trauma. She currently plays Florinda in the Encores production of Into the Woods that is set to transfer to Broadway this summer. So first of all, Brooke, how are you? <laughs> oh, I'm so good, I'm in LA right now. And I'm, oh, so sorry, I just flipped out. Did, are we good? Yeah. Um, I, ju- I just flew back to LA after we closed the city center run. And now I'm headed back to New York, like in a week, in next week. Man, I mean, you must be so excited. How does it feel to be going to, to Broadway? I mean, it'll be, I'm sure, just a whirlwind of emotions and experiences. It feels surreal to be honest it's all happened very quickly it's my Broadway debut which is incredibly exciting but it's also hard to wrap my brain around I don't think I've processed anything yet I haven't even like cried tears of joy yet which I'm sure will happen on opening night when I finally feel like I can celebrate it because at this point you know it's a lot of logistics and just a lot of uh planning and and rearranging and life stuff and Um, so, so I haven't given myself, I haven't felt like I had the space yet to really sit in what this means to me, because, you know, this was my dream ever since I was a little, 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 little kid. And it's, I'm 36 now. And it's, I always imagined I would be on Broadway by the time I like, I thought I was going to like get out. I would like leave college early and make my Broadway debut and that didn't happen. So I've had a very long journey to get here. And so it's, you know, it's, it's, I'm very moment like momentous for me, but I haven't really had had this the time or the space to like feel feel how momentous it is. Yeah, and taking it, I guess, back to where we are right now. How did you react when they called you and told you that Into the Woods was going to be transferring to Broadway at the St. James? I I think I knew that it was likely. Uh, but I didn't think it was going to happen this fast because, you know, you have to wait for a Broadway house to be available. And, you know, those suckers are booked out years in advance and we're living in the time of COVID where anything can change in a, in a moment, in a moment. (laughs) And, um, and also, you know, I, I think there were so many Uh, celebrities involved and so many people's schedules that would affect you know this transfer happening and so I don't think any of us thought it was going to happen this fast Mm -hmm. I really don't I really truly don't think anyone happened thought it was going to happen this quickly um so I think that element took us by surprise or I can speak for myself it took me by surprise for sure um which makes it even more exhilarating but also a little bit more like chaotic um (laughs) so I felt you know I felt like I I I thought I had a feeling it was it was likely, but I did not think it was going to happen this fast. If anything, I was like, oh, maybe they'll do a cast recording or a pro shot, and maybe that's what we'll get as like our gift. But this was, you know, an even bigger gift. <laughs> and can you talk a little bit about you know your audition process, how this project kind of came to you, and just your experience 
of, I mean, joining such a star-studded, incredible cast. Yeah, so I didn't audition, which is oh. very, very new. Uh, that doesn't, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't happen very often. I've never, I don't really know if I can even count that I don't even know if I can name the number of times I've gotten a straight offer ever in my career. And I've been working since I was, you know, in college. So uh, that's new and very, you know, amazing. Um, it's not something that happens very often. I had worked with Lear DeBessonet, our director, like over a decade ago. I think it was in 2000, actually it was like 2013, I think. Um, so a little shy of a decade ago, I, after I graduated from Marymount Manhattan, I did a ton of downtown experimental theater, off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway, et cetera, developing and workshopping uh, and originating, you know, new work, new plays. That was what, that was my jam. Uh, I was the go-to girl for that, that kind of stuff. And Lear, I met Lear working on a production of Takarazuka by Susan Sunhi Stanton. And we did that show with Club Thumb. And then Lear cast me in, what happened after that? After Takarazuka, Lear cast me in a production of Good Person of Szechuan with Taylor Mack that we did at La Mama. And that was a huge hit. So then we transferred to the public. Mm -hmm. um, and it was one of, one of my most favorite, one of the best experiences I've ever had in my entire career to date. Um, I would say top three two out of the three are now Lear projects, including Into the Woods. So, you know, that's how I met Lear. And we just, we stayed in touch over the pandemic when I founded BNR Zero, which we'll talk about later. Lear was an incredible ally and resource for us uh, as, a, as, a, as a partner in the work we were doing for advocating for arts workers and our organizations during the pandemic. Uh, and we just stayed in touch and, and uh, she, they called me to see if I was willing to do a local hire, which meant I had to put myself up and pay for my own lodging and housing, which is a whole other thing we can talk about. Um, and they checked to see if I was available and I was, and it just it worked out and it happened very quickly. It, it all happened very fast. And it came out of no, it came out of the sky. Like it dropped out of the sky. It was felt like a, like a, a huge blessing that I wasn't anticipating at all. And I didn't expect. And it was, it just felt again, it felt like everything around this project has felt really magical and like touched by the spirit of Stephen Sondheim. Yeah. It just seems like everything, you know, is meant to happen as it did. And it, you know, it's, gonna be on Broadway for at least eight weeks which is amazing and hopefully longer <laughs> so next can we just talk about you know kind of the beginning of your performing journey um you know as Brooke Ishibashi and like when did you start performing when did you start singing or like acting or dancing or any of that yeah, so uh, it runs in the family I have a show business family uh, going backwards my father's grandmother so my paternal great grandmother was an opera singer in Japan I'm fourth generation Japanese American which I think you mentioned mm -hmm. um and my mother's mother so my maternal grandmother is uh 96 and she's a lot alive and stronger than ever she was known as the songbird of Manzanar and Manzanar is the camp in which she was imprisoned during World, World yeah. War II when you know 120,000 Japanese Americans were all forcibly removed from their homes put into prison camps uh, because they looked like the enemy during the war so in the camps she was at Manzanar which is in ironically Independence California um she uh was the camp 
singer. So when they were allowed to have things like little like dances and stuff, mm-hmm. she was the she was the chanteuse. And so she was like a, you know, like a um like a jazz singer. And um that's how she met my grandfather. And so music was always in my family. And then my parents met in the 70s. They both grew up in Southern California. They met in the 70s in my dad's R&B soul funk band. He was the front man and she auditioned to be the lead singer and the lead female singer. And that's how they met. And then they opened a music store together. They had my sis- me and my sisters. Um, then my dad started a music production company, uh, essentially producing uh, concerts and concert festivals. So, you know, I grew up like a backstage music kid. We would, he would produce acts like Ray Charles and Bonnie Raitt and No Doubt and Sugar Ray and The Wallflowers and, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Flamers, Famers like The Temptations and The Shirelles and, uh, you know, so it was it was a really interesting childhood because we grew up in show business and we grew up in the music industry. So that's how we um, that's how I grew up. And then my sisters and I, there's three three of us: Brittany, Brianna, Brooke, and we're all actor, writer, yeah. uh, uh, singer, etc., singers, etc. Uh, we grew up doing musical theater. We were always in like kid musical theater camp. Uh, we went to an incredible school called the Music Room in Orange, California, with an amazing community there. And then we all, Brianna and I followed in Britney's footsteps growing up. She was always in show choir and drama. So we we all did drama. We all had the same incredible mentors, uh, Roy Diaz and John Wirtz, growing up. And they kind of trained us outside of school and then got us prepared for college auditions and stuff. Um, and then we all went to school to to, to study theater. So Brittany went to UCLA drama, Brianna went to the Hart School of Music at the University of Hartford in Connecticut, and I went to Marymount Manhattan College. And then we all pursued careers in the arts. And you know, my parents are musicians and performers and artists, so they encouraged us to do that, which is not the usual story, especially for uh, yeah. my Asian friends. <laughs> Um, so we were encouraged to, you know, pursue the lives that we wanted and the careers that we wanted. And, um, yeah. And so I spent 11 years at Marymount, pardon me. I spent, I wasn't in school for 11 years. Um, Anybody watching at home, don't be in college for 11 years. Um, so I went to Marymount, uh, graduated from there with a BA in theater performance and a minor in musical theater. And uh yeah then I just spent 11 years in New York City doing doing theater and like scraping by making no money but like you know doing the work that I wanted to do and being really creatively fulfilled workshopping plays creating new plays uh stuff like that until I moved to LA in 2015 I was cast as the lead in this NBC sitcom which didn't last um and then I just stayed in LA uh, started working on a show called Cambodian Rock Band for a couple of years, which we developed together over a couple uh, the courts the span of three to four years. Toured that show all around the country, um, and then pandemic happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that's that brings us brings us currently up to date. Yeah, I, I find that amazing that you know your family is so into the arts and the business. For me, my family on my mom's side is very musical in a way and so, but then my dad's side is like pure doctors just like mm-hmm. everyone's a doctor but thankfully my dad is kind of the person who got me into musical theater he's the one who always really? he's the one who surprised me to see into the woods um because I was not planning to go back to New York and then he gave me the ticket he was like 
here we're going I was like oh my god oh my god that's such a beautiful gift yeah and so we just had a great time and I'm so thankful that you know my dad is supportive and my mom of course my parents are both very supportive of me trying to you know pursue what you are doing (laughs) yeah absolutely and what's your what's your heritage by the way oh I'm Taiwanese American my Um. mom um was born in Taiwan and then came here when she was five and then my on my dad's side he was born around in like New York I think and my grandparents were the ones who came over on that side so I'm kind of like two and a half generation. (laughs) I love it and and in in your family's history were there any people who were who were who were um artists by trade? I mean my grandfather he is like an architect but he loves to play like his main thing is the saxophone, but he plays so many different instruments, like different, you know, Asian, Chinese instruments, or just like the piano, or just really anything. And so whenever I go visit, which I was there like yesterday, um, there's always music in the house. And like, I have cousins who love to sing and all that kind of stuff. Oh my God. So then when, what was your first exposure to Broadway? I mean, my dad has been taking me to see like regional theater in LA and stuff since I was little. And then we always went to like the Pantages. Oh, what uh, was your first show? I actually don't remember. I think it might've been the Lion King somewhere. Oh. <laughs> but, oh. and then it finally started like picking up once Hamilton started to become a thing. I mean, wow. that's a lot of people. <laughs> I, I want to say, I think I don't know for sure my parents could tell me I think my very first professional theater experience was Phantom of the Opera when it toured you know how they always tour in the major regional houses Mm -hmm. um I grew up in Orange County so uh, in Costa Mesa they have um oh gosh why am I blanking they have a huge touring house um there Segerstrom Segerstrom Hall oh yeah I've been there yeah (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. so uh that's uh I think that's where we saw Phantom I don't think we saw it in LA um and I just my only memory of Phantom was that I was like cold and scared (laughs) and (laughs) the chandelier was like terror like the chandelier terrifying to me and that's all I remember and she like wore a pretty dress that's all I remember (laughs) (laughs) yeah I remember I saw like the king and I at the Pantages I just remember being cold I really can't remember anything about the show (laughs) isn't that wild like your childhood memories because you know our kid brains are just experiencing everything sensorily you know so I'm actually so interested to see my two sisters have five little ones all under the age of seven between the two of them and uh they want to come see the show and so I think the website says ages four and up is okay they're all you know really mature and well behaved but I'm they're so cute they're like little Broadway Broadway um fans so they have like Broadway books about like A is for Audra B is for so they know, and my sisters will show them clips. So when Brittany, my oldest sister, told her kids, Kai and Lilia, that I was doing the Auntie Momo, me, um, that I was doing Into the Woods, they were like, oh, with Bernadette Peters? Oh. So like, they just assumed I was doing the show with Bernadette, which was so, oh. so sweet. They're like, no, it's with Heather Headley. <laughs> no, no, Heather Headley. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm excited because I think, you know, hopefully they can all make it to New York to see this during the summer. And it would be their first professional theater experience with their Auntie Momo. And for, some, for it to be something as magical as this, um, 
oh gosh, it would just be so beautiful. I'm just a little worried about act two for them. Oh yeah, it can be a little, little bit intense, but I mean, I'm sure they'll just enjoy uh, it and they'll be like, there she is. <laughs> Auntie Momo. Yeah, but they just, you know, like, when they're at the age where they like talk back at you, mm-hmm. they'll be like, no, or you know, like, they're, they're reactive, which I think like, that's why I love student audiences because they're reactive and responsive and they like play with you. And I think, isn't that what theater should be? And yeah. I think it's so, it's so, um, disappointing but also reflective of the white patriarchal capitalist systems that we live in (laughs) that people are constantly telling us to shush and that they're pushing us um to to you know to fit into their idea of what theater etiquette is which is like who defined that who who decided I mean there is a line where you have to draw but I think most of the time Mm -hmm. it's just having fun (laughs) like I into the woods I remember just laughing so much and like crying too and just it being a really good theater experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it just, you know, I, if anything, it should feel like, if we look back at the, the root of theater, the history of theater, you know, it was more of, it wasn't necessarily interactive, but it was engaging with the community. It was, and it was involving all of the, the people who were sharing this space together. So I do love, and that's the beauty of Lear's work as well, is that she always, she's so community focused and that's what all of her work is based in. So the idea that you're, showing people in the audience like the fabric of the humanity that you know that 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 basically um weaves us all together and it reminds people of their own humanity because you're literally seeing it or yeah. all around you're getting folded into it so yeah but I think I just don't so need and so next I wanted to ask you what is it like learning such a complicated show in such a short amount of time I mean I know you guys are going to have more rehearsals to put in your cast members and like really get used to the material, but watching it, I was like, how do you remember it all that fast? I think, oh yeah, I did audition like in January. I didn't get it, but for Into the Woods in the community, um, I think I auditioned for like Cinderella. I was supposed to learn On the Steps of the Palace and it took me like a full week to learn the lyrics. I was like, this is too much. And then seeing you guys do it in like 10 days, it's like, these people are amazing superheroes. Well, we did our best and not in any way to underplay the talents or the skills of the people involved, but we were struggling. It was it was a constant struggle. The 10-day rehearsal process was chaotic. It was stressful. Everyone was I mean, there's funny, I'll, I'll, I'll send you later. There's this, there's this um, interview we did. We did a virtual benefit with Seth, Seth Radetzky and James oh, Wesley. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch that. Yeah, um, Sarah and Gavin talk about it specifically about how everybody was just constantly going down. Sh- I, I can't speak for everyone, but <laughs> many of us, most of us were having shame spirals and breakdowns every day and panic attacks because, and seriously, and, and, and I, I make light of it, but it was actually that intense yeah. um, because the pressure was on. It was such a sh- sh- very abbreviated rehearsal period. So yeah. many eyeballs were on this production and we had to deliver and not just deliver a, a, sh- a show, we had to deliver a Sondheim show with Sondheim lyrics and Sondheim music, which is so nuanced and technical and complicated yes. and challenging vocally and musically. And uh, and these people are all like first rate musicians and, 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 and vocalists and actors. Um, so there's that, but also doing what is, you know, a, a, basically a, a staged concert production, but knowing the expectation was that audiences come and they see these shows and people are almost entirely off book, if not 
entirely off book and there's stage there's choreography and there's full costuming and lights and sets and sound so it's not it's a concert but it's not a concert and so we were feeling the heat so it was incredibly stressful but the beautiful thing about it Ashley is that there wasn't a single diva in the bunch and there was no ego and in such a tense situation tempers are bound to flare up and egos are bound to to come to the surface and not once which was miraculous there it always is it always happens at least with one person or in one moment it never happened from what I saw everyone was so grateful to be there everyone was so happy to be working everyone was I mean honestly everyone was just happy to be alive in this moment after everything we've survived in the last couple years to be creating something like this together to be doing it with such an amazing group of people to share it with audiences in New York City after the shutdown and to celebrate Stephen Sondheim after he after he's just recently passed away so um I think that had a lot to do with it that we were all so stressed out and and so um under so much pressure but there was a lot of joy behind it because we were all incredibly grateful yeah I it seemed like such a magical room to be in I mean just seeing the show everyone was just I mean, just amazing. It was so professional. You could not tell at all that anyone was like, you know, kind of crazed or, you know, like struggling. Everyone, you know, just did their beautiful performances and left it all on the stage. Like you could tell that everyone was putting everything that they had into the performances just because there were so few and that it was just such a special production that now we get to kind of continue in a way, obviously with some changes, but I mean, I feel like it's probably going to be the same heart of the story and the same heart of the production, even though it's a different place. And, uh, yeah, different yeah. place. and, and that's, the, that's the hope, right, is that you keep it with a direct transfer. They basically just take it and they plop it down somewhere else and try to keep everything intact. The hope is that it retains that magic, but I think the magic has to do with um, that genuine sense of of gratitude and heart that everyone brought to it and that's what I think made it so special and I really try I trust Lear I trust her vision I trust that she knows how to pick humans who are uh, who are um, who have that kind of integrity in the work they do and how they live their lives as human beings um, you know so I think it there we also had this the spirit of well we got to make it count because we've all been pent up in our homeless for the last couple of years and so many people I know don't have the opportunity or the um, the 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 luck to be involved in a situation to be working at all, but also to have your health and to also be working on a show like this. So everyone just knew that we had to make this we had to make this count for ourselves, but also on behalf of the people who aren't aren't um, don't have the opportunity to be doing to, to be as fortunate as as us to be doing this kind of work. Um, I think we all felt that we have we all felt that responsibility. Um, but I also will say that even though on the from the audience it may seem that everything it may it, it seemed as though things were um, smooth and polished and calm, we were all still running back between scenes to our books, just like remembering what's my next entrance entrance, where am I going, who am I, what am I doing, uh, almost the entire way through the run. So mm-hmm. we'll only have an abbreviated rehearsal period moving forward. So we still don't have a ton of time to plug in all the new folks, um, but you know, we'll make the most of it. 
So what was your favorite memory from Into the Woods at the New York City Center? Please don't make me choose because there's so many. But when you asked me, the first thing that came to mind was uh, I would share a backstage table station with Neil, like we were catty oh, corner. Okay. And so uh, we, you know, as I said earlier, like we were always going back to our books in between scenes to like look at the music and figure out where we we're going and blah, blah, blah. So he had this thing, he would do well, many things. He always, you know, he's kind of like a vaudeville clown. And so he was always doing like loosey goosey, like physical <laughs> exercises and stuff and like doing like little magic tricks backstage and like balancing canes on his chin. Oh my God. Or just, like, dancing around like like I told him he was like Gumby because he was just like rubber <laughs> and so he was always like doing something strange to like warm up his body or just like get his like his wacky energy out he also had a vocal warm-up which was kind of a joke but also like real he'd also be like um num 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 what, what was it, it was like uh Mariska Hargitain or Frisky Cardigan and he'd be like mm. I'm ready. And like, he would just like do something like that. And so that was a really fun memory. And then, uh, gosh, what else? Um, Heather, I, I mean, I would sit in the wings and watch everything, but I would always watch Heather's Last Midnight and mm -hmm. Through the Wings. And then I'd always follow her because like in a, the viewpoint I had from the, the downstage wing on stage right I could watch everything but then when she moves upstage I had to track yeah. her so I would always like move my position to always to watch to <laughs> every second her performance and then the most amazing thing is like at the end of the of, of last midnight uh, the lights go down and then she exits off stage right so I could just watch her coming off stage and just watching a powerhouse like Heather who's such an incredible human, but also just the most amazing performer and vocalist and, and, and spirit, watching her finish a number like that and then come off stage and watching her kind of recalibrate and the energy that was just like emanating off of her is something I'll just never get that image out of my brain. And I have, I like snuck little videos too. <laughs> um, so, you know, it'll just, it'll always be like the musical theater fan in me will always, like, will always like hold on to those memories. I would watch the monitors backstage, which were, which were like really high def video screens. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'd watch the monitors and it felt like I was watching YouTube videos of my favorite Broadway stars, the way I, like I grew up watching Gavin Creel, you know, Heather Headley, all of them, Sarah Bareilles. I grew up watching all of them on YouTube. And so that's like my association with these people as performers. So I'd watch the screen and, and it felt like I was just like younger Brooke watching my idols. And then I would look over my shoulder and they would be right there, like paces away on stage. Yeah. And it was, and I, and I would like look at the screen and then look at the wing and then look at the screen and look at the wing and be like, <laughs> what is my life? Yeah. That's, oh. Those are some of my best memories. I kind of did that when I was just in like a small community production. I would just like watch things from the wings. Like for my friend, Jack is going to Marymount Manhattan. I would like watch his things and like, you know, cause I, even for my track, it was like a little bit more off stage. So mm -hmm. it's like a lot of backstage stuff is fun. And then I just realized like I have Sarah literally on my wall, like it's right there. Waitress? A waitress. <laughs> I don't have the one with Gavin, but I do have two of Sarah on here. Oh, she's just a dream. I could not be more in love with her. She's just, all of them, Ashley, like they, they far exceeded my expectations and my hopes and dreams. You know how they always say, don't meet your heroes because people are always disappointed because we're all human. Every single person in this cast 
was beyond my wildest dreams of what I thought, what I hoped they would be. Just like the most kind-hearted, loving, supportive human beings who were so playful, so grateful, so happy to be there. When we plugged in a couple understudies to go on who were amazing, Cameron Johnson and Jason Forbach, uh, there was... Where Neil, you. We we're done with re the rehearsal and everyone. For a second. Sorry, <laughs> you oh, just froze for like a sure. quick we're, minute. Uh, I think we're going to get back. Uh, like you said, Jason, and then I think we're okay. Um, so we had two understudies, Jason Forbach and Cameron Johnson, who ended up going on in the city center run. And there was one moment in a put-in with Cameron where we had finished rehearsal and, you know, it's a very stressful process and everyone's tired and everyone could have just, you know, we were excused. So we could have all just gone back to our dressing rooms and taken care of our needs. But Neil was sticking around. It was Neil and Gavin and Sarah, and they were walking Cameron through all of the little beats and there was a moment and I took a video of this because I figured Cameron would want this later where mm -hmm. I saw Neil kind of like taking Cameron by the shoulder and being like okay well we'll do this and then we do this and then you do this and blah 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 and we'll hold for you because if, if I if, if we don't hold then we're going to step on your laugh so I want to make sure you get your laugh mm -hmm. and he was just so generous to take the time to do that to make sure Cameron had what he needed yeah. so it was just it was amazing I mean, I saw Jason as um, Rapunzel's prince, and I mean, you couldn't even tell that he probably didn't get as much rehearsal as everyone else. Like he was just such a pro, and everyone was so seemed so supportive as a cast of just, you know, supporting a person that might not be on every single day. Um, and then, of course, there's always on stage mishaps. But are there any like that you know, were your favorite that you can tell us about? Oh gosh. And also just, yes, a shout out to Jason. He's amazing. All three of them are Mary Kate Moore and Cameron and Jason. They're incredible and they're stars in their own right. So I'm so grateful that they got an opportunity to show audiences how amazing they are, you know, um, mishaps. There are so many, um, the Cinderella's shoe would always fly somewhere oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and some nights it would fly there were two nights maybe more where it flew into the audience oh no <laughs> yeah it flew into the audience and uh that was amazing um <laughs> there was one time it happened a, a, a an audience member threw it back in, immediately <laughs> and Renee and Sarah had this elongated moment where they both I think Danae broke character and she couldn't stop laughing. And then Sarah had this interplay with the audience member and it just like, you know, that moment just stretched out and the audience was eating it up. Um, there was another moment where Sarah forgot lyrics and I saw on Twitter, people had recorded this on the audio and they were sharing it. There was a moment in Moment in the Woods where she forgot her lyrics and she just like took a second and she said, these are not the right lyrics. And then she like went to the audience and she was like, does anybody know the lyrics? <laughs> and then she, you know, it was a really beautiful moment with the audience. And then she, you know, she collected it and, uh, and then reset and the audience just ate it up. But that's one of the things Lear told us early on, Ashley, which alleviated some of the stress, not all of it, but some of it, um, she said, because she felt the pressure and she felt the stress that we were all under. And she said, I'm going to tell you all a couple stories about 
encores and the beauty of it, but also what audiences expect. And um, hopefully this will help uh, shine some light on the process and, and, and et cetera. So she had mentioned when they did Tick, Tick, Boom with Lin-Manuel, his microphone had gone out and he just kept singing and stagehands came on while he was singing, still in the scene, middle of the song and they were going up his shirt and rewiring and taking things out and just you know do, doing it all like you know like you know when like race um, race car drivers when they when they do like those quick oh, changes yeah. you know, it was like that and they were just you know being their amazing professional selves and just getting his his new mic set up and this all happened as he was singing the song in real time and nothing nothing stopped for a moment and the audience just went wild and she said you know, moments like that are what Encore is, is that, that's what Encore is really about. Um, people know it's a two week process. People yeah. know that things are gonna go wrong and they love it when things go wrong. So the more you, the less you shy away and clam up and go into a shame spiral of like, oh no, I forgot my lyrics. And the more you invite the audience into, into the, the, the fuck ups, um, the more they're gonna love it. And the more yeah. you'll, you'll be able to enjoy, enjoy, enjoy the process and, and, um, and kind of be in on the joke together, you know? So that was amazing because it made us all feel a little bit, it felt like we could like breathe a sigh of relief and say, okay, shit's going to go wrong. I know shit's going to go wrong. And like, let's just, let, let's just like, let's embrace it, like lean in to the chaos. And that like made the process more joyful. Yeah. And I mean, especially, you know, as a professional like Sarah, who, you know, is amazing like probably to see her do that. It's like, okay, you know, like let's just calm down and just like enjoy the moment a little bit more. Yeah. And then yeah. Do, you, do you have any just in general theater, like dream roles? I know I have one for like every show possible. Um, <laughs> hey, gosh. I, mean, I, I think growing up for shows that were already written, my top shows were always... Well, Millie for a long time, because Sutton and Gavin were my dream growing up. Millie for a long time. But then as I grew up, I realized there were very problematic racial implications with the way the show was written. So that shifted. Um, and amazing that they were going to produce it with Ashley Park and my, yeah. my collaborator, Lauren Yee, and rewriting it um, at City Center. So Millie was one for a while. Um, Into the Woods was one, playing all the roles, because yeah. every female <laughs> role is to die for. And uh, rent, rent was rent has always been a favorite of mine since I was a young person. Um, and uh, last five years, I'm obsessed with last five years. Uh, I'm also obsessed with Andrew Lippa's Wild Party. So I'm I'm like freaking out that Brian Darcy James is in oh, this cast. Yes. I'm freaking out. Yeah, um, I was um, a Shrek fan. Like before, I was a musical theater fan. I was a Shrek the musical fan. <laughs> oh my god, really? He's yeah. He can do everything and it's almost like maddening. Like I can't wrap my brain around how agile he is of a performer and vocalist. Yeah. He's, he can literally do everything. It like blows my mind. I mean, even something um, rotten, that was a crazy show too. I love that show. <laughs> oh, I never got to see it. I've seen clips, but I've never got to see it. I, I would have died. But I did see like other regional and like tour productions. Oh, I would have, I would like not seeing Christian and Brian in that show together is like a great, great um, disappointment in my life. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I mean, hopefully there's like 
recordings or things like that. <laughs> and I've seen, and I literally just YouTubed yesterday. I watched a clip of the two of them at 54 Below, I think. Oh, yeah, but they do like the tapping. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. It's so good. It's just, it's just like two of the best performers of all time doing what they're amazing at together. It just, oh, what a gift. Yeah, and then I wanted to move on and just talk about, you know, representation with Florinda, Cinderella, and Lucinda all being people of color. Like, does, did that give you a real sense of pride for where, you know, theater is heading and where we're hopefully going to end up? Because I know for me, I noticed it immediately. I was like, okay, all three of the sisters are people of color. And then moving on to Broadway with Philip Sue, it's going to be two of the three are going to be Asian, which is just amazing. I mean... For not seeing myself in like Disney princesses or just princesses in general, it's kind of groundbreaking and just amazing. You know, it is. And and I'll say I celebrate it and I'm so excited by it because people like Lear and Clint Ramos and Jenny Gersten and the City Center uh, creative team and staff, you know, they are the kinds of, of folks who are pushing for this kind of representation. So I'm I'm so grateful, but I'll also team with that, team that with the 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 feeling that it's not enough, you know, in order to level the playing field and for everything to be truly um, equal in terms of representation, or I think uh, representative of, uh, you know, our, our numbers and, and representation in the country and how many people, how many of us there are in the world, um, you actually have to hypercompensate and overcorrect in order to level things out. Yes. Because we can't just say 50-50 because even when you say 50-50, it's still not this the, the math still doesn't match up. It still doesn't um correct the numbers. So you I I am of the philosophy that we've gotta we've gotta hypercorrect until things start to feel more like a like a level playing field. Um all that being said, I'm I you know I'm so grateful to Lear and this entire group of producers for for giving us the opportunity to make this, to normalize this kind of casting. Yes. You yeah. know, because, you know, it doesn't matter that Anne Harada is Japanese and Cole Thompson, who plays her son, is is Black. It doesn't, doesn't matter, yeah. you know, because they're, they're telling the story. Uh, and, and and that's something that Joanna Gleason said. She was our surprise guest in the Stars in the House Benefit. Oh. And she was the original Baker's wife. She's amazing. Yeah. She's a legend. And she said... Uh, she makes her, she made her students do an, take an oath, take a vow every time she would teach a class. And she said, I don't want to butcher this, but she said something like, uh, I, 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 I don't make any promises for my voice, but I do promise to tell the story until the story is told. Mm-hmm. And that's something that, that I think I will always carry with me is that, you know, you can't, you can't ever make promises for your, yeah. you know, the condition of your of your voice or where you might be on a certain day after eight shows um in a week but you can promise to be committed to to maintain the integrity of telling the story and that's all you can really expect of yourself as a performer because so many other conditions may interfere with your ability to sing a perfect sing a perfect show yeah you know (laughs) so I will always hold that with me but the representation Ashley it's just I, I, I'm so pleased with it. I'm so pleased to see Josh Henry joining the cast. Yeah, I'm so excited for him. He's amazing. And, uh, pardon me, Joshua, I know he, you know. Uh, and then uh, we have a couple of the people who are joining the cast, which haven't been announced yet, that I'm really excited about. Um, so it's really wonderful, but I do want this, you know, I think we still have a long way to go. Yes, no, that's exactly what I'm trying to, you know, kind of talk about is like, 
it's we're going we're getting there but it's mm -hmm. not there yet <laughs> it's like yeah we can celebrate it but we have to do work to make sure that you know that's what it's going to be normalized in the future so i know for me when i was auditioning for the um community production of Vince woods and then you know i didn't get it because i think they wanted like older people and they thought it was older but I'm way younger um and so but at first I was like okay are they gonna see me as a princess or even like you know um getting a call back for like Rapunzel and Cinderella like are they going to see me as these characters like is that in this theater's you know focus or anything like that um and then Finally, you know, now seeing Philippa Sue playing Cinderella and originally Ashley Park was going to be Cinderella. And then Danae, like I am obsessed with like each of these women, <laughs> especially like Ashley Park. I saw her in Mean Girls and I was at first so excited. And then I was like, oh my gosh, Danae is like so gorgeous and her vo voice is just amazing. And then with Philippa Sue, it's like, she's Philippa Sue. Like, what are you gonna, what else can you say? And it's just, it gives, you know, kids like me, just kind of that identification of like, okay, I might have doubts about where I am right now and the situation that I'm in, where there's not as many opportunities as when you're in, you know, the when you're older and have more time to like, not more time, but like just the resources to pursue different projects just really anywhere. It's like, yeah, you can do that. You might have doubts, but I mean, it's there. You People just need it's just the right people that you really need to find, I guess. <laughs> I think so. And I think also being really conscientious and relentless with the kind of storytelling that we should demand for ourselves, because I don't want white people telling stories about Asian people. You yeah. know, I don't want them to be the creative teams and the producers behind Asian stories. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's why I do think we do still have a long way to go. I can celebrate that they're, you know, remaking certain properties that have to do with Asian material, and Asian stories, but if they're told and led by white uh, creatives, it, it doesn't feel uh, like that's the right path forward for me. And also while we're on the topic, I do wanna say, you know, while we're, while we made strides with, you know, representing black performers and Asian performers in our Into the Woods, you know, we don't have anyone in our cast that I know of who has a disability or mm -hmm. someone, anyone from the trans community. Yeah. So I do think that, you know, we don't have anyone from the, the, you know, native indigenous community. I don't know for sure if anyone identifies from the Latinx or Latina, um, Latino community with the, the last cast and with this upcoming cast. So, you know, there's still, there's still, a, um, we're not representing everybody, but I think we're trying. And, and uh, what I appreciate is the, when people put the money and the resources behind making that happen. And just the effort. I mean, you can really tell with the city center production that, you know, like Lear is really trying to promote that. And it's, it's really beautiful when you get to see it all come together and just really highlighting all these people of color, like Danae or you and the other stepsister and like everybody else and Jack and um, Anne Harada, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> and just oh. seeing that there is steps being taken. We're not, we're not up the stair, like in a way up the stairs yet. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And my step at a time. 
Yeah, exactly. And my sister Tanika Renee Gibson is amazing. And she, you know, she's a star in her own right. She's on the HBO Lakers show playing Debbie Allen. She was, um, you know, was an AT proud. Like she's, she is incredible and she's a star in her own right, you know? So I'm just, I feel very lucky to be in this. I remember watching like the rehearsal videos and like you and Tanika are so funny, just like being in character, pretending to like be blind and all that kind of stuff. I was just like bursting out laughing. I was like, that is like, you know, just being in character and committing. <laughs> she, she's, she's my girl. I love her so much. And you know what, too, while we're on the topic, which I just feel like is interesting to note, I had real issues about is, is the storytelling about um, yeah. becoming blind, is that, is that offensive? Uh, when we talk about dwarfism and dwarfs, is that offensive? I have a friend who has dwarfism and and and, uh, and I know people who are blind or have are, or are visually impaired, and I really struggled with that, Ashley, because I didn't know how to tell the story in a way that didn't poke fun at the at the condition or the disability. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So that's something that I'm still exploring, and I'm so open to having that conversation because I don't want to be the person, you know, touting like you know touting representation and the person who then turns around and makes fun of it. Yeah, you know, that's true. But yeah, I think it it's a great point to make about, you know, representing people with disabilities. I think it, from my perspective of watching it, the way that you and Tanika like portrayed it as was like the circumstantial, like the circumstance was the thing that made it, but like, you know, gets the laugh. But then like, you're not trying to like actively, you know, sure. make fun of the blind, you know, hard of uh, like, visually impaired community uh, where it's like you know you have to kind of give and take like there you know you can't please everybody but if you're gonna you know do something at least do it in a respectful way and I think you guys did that like gracefully and I mean it it was great it was you know entertaining to watch you guys just stay in character and like just with the glasses and it reminded me of that moment in Shrek where there's like the three blind mice. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, Brian is like obviously coming into the cast, so that'll be <laughs> kind of funny in a way. Yeah. Um, and then like next, just being an Asian American performer, what is your advice for young performers who are wanting to get into this industry where they feel like they don't belong? Advice for performers going into an industry where they feel like they don't belong. I would say, I would say, well, somewhat a showrunner who cast me in my first TV show ever, DJ Nash, told me to always know, to always maintain your North Star, to know what your North Star is, because as long as you maintain that integrity and you have something leading you home and you don't stray from it, mm-hmm. you, you'll, you, you'll, you'll be okay. Because a lot of shit happens in the industry. You have to deal with a lot of, um, a lot of, uh, unfortunate circumstances but as long as you can maintain your own sense of integrity and your own north star you know you, you you'll you'll stay pretty you'll, you'll you'll stay pretty healthy so for him it was always it was his wife and his kids you know that was what mattered to him it was what anchored him so i would say as you you know as you evolve and and start working and start figuring out what you want to do to to really know what your own values are like to, to really start like ask yourself like what matters to me what kind of stories do I want to tell what kind of performer artist arts worker do I want to be how do I want to exist in the world as that person and how do I want to impact people um and even more so what kind of 
arts artist, arts worker, performer do I not want to be? Yeah. You know, I think asking yourself those questions is really important. Um, and beyond that, you know, we can talk about labor issues with the work I do with being arts hero, but to really know your worth, to know your value, to know that the work you do as an arts worker is tied to a, a, an intrinsic and, and, and really weighty economic value because we often get dismissed. Most of the time we do get dismissed because our lawmakers, uh, employers, they think of, you know, the arts as something that's, you know, it, it's, it's um, in a way. Yeah, and it, it's not unessential, right? It's we're not the essential workers, um, and that's a story problem. And and the, a lot of the work we do is to rewrite that narrative. But I do think that once you know arts and culture sector, it's a nine hundred nineteen billion dollar economic driver. We're one of the leading economic drivers in the nation. We have five point two million arts workers who make up the arts and culture sector. That's that's sizable. I think at this point it's like four point three percent of the GDP of the nation's GDP. So if you don't have us driving the nation's economy, then all of the other ancillary industries like hospitality, transportation, et cetera, they then there's a domino effect. We then affect their ability to to survive and thrive yeah. because we impact them directly. Our fates are so intrinsically tied together. So. I will also say to anyone who's, you know, doesn't think they have a place in this industry to know that if you decide to pursue a career as an arts worker, and I say arts worker and not artist because the work we do is labor and everyone should equate that as, 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 as labor, yeah. um, to know that the work you do has value and to know that you have value so that when you start to pursue this professionally, you can demand that value and have a boundary for yourself. Mm -hmm. so that you know um that that should be that should be paid to you you should be treated um as the valuable arts worker that you are absolutely so, uh, can you talk a little bit about being the co-founder of be an arts hero yeah absolutely so during the pandemic as a response to the pandemic uh, a couple friends and i uh, who are all arts workers decided that we had to do something to help the state of the arts and culture sector and all of its workers and organizations and unions, et cetera. So we started an effort that was originally intended to extend FPUP, which was the Federal Pandemic Unemployment Compensation Benefits, because they were going to go away forever as of August 1st of 2020. So we created an organizing effort uh, we're, and we're organizers um, uh, by nature. So we created an effort with social media toolkits, et cetera, to get people to write to their Congress, Congress people to extend FPUC. Um, social media assets, et cetera. And we were just, you know, we were, we were shouting it from the rooftops to anybody who, who would listen to us. Mm -hmm. And when that, uh, when FPUC was not extended, we realized that the efforts had to continue and we had to pivot and expand our efforts and evolve in a way. So we then became the an arts hero which is essentially, a, it was a grassroots campaign to get FBUC extended, but then it became an effort to then get proportionate relief to the arts and culture sector uh, from, from Congress. Uh, so, so it became kind of this hybrid, we always say it was like a Scooby-Doo mystery machine. It became this hybrid effort of an educational arm and, a, and an organization mobilizing arm and a lobbying arm. We were lobbying senators and house reps all day, every day, hundreds of them uh, to, and delivering to them these really dense economic reports detailing the value of the arts and culture sector in all of their regions. Yeah. And 
So we would basically like pitch them like the way you pitch a TV show and we'd say, this is, you know, this is what, and it's, I, I think the reason, part of the reason why our lobbying efforts have been so successful is because we're storytellers. So yeah. we know how to articulate an argument and tell them a story, but in order to do that, we had to reframe it and change the narrative. And that's why we, we started, we essentially, I think we can take credit for getting arts work and arts workers um, kind of into the nation's vocabulary. Uh, we wanted to redefine the work we do as labor because we are a labor movement. Yeah. And so when we brought our arguments to these uh, Cong congressional offices, we, we articulated a strictly economic uh, argument um, on behalf of the arts and culture sector. So we were doing this work for most of 2020, all of 2021, even till now. And one of our initial goals was to get a congressional hearing on behalf of the creative economy. And we actually got it to happen, which was blows my mind. It was the first in the nation's history uh, on behalf of the creative economy. And we had a congressional house hearing and one of my co-founders testified along with incredible other arts workers and, and friends and allies like Nataki Garrett who runs Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And it was, it was, it was profound uh, because that was the goal all along is we get our lawmakers to listen and get them to pass meaningful relief to to our sector and all of our workers and all of our institutions to help us get through this crisis. So that was the work that we started doing and that we have been doing and are still doing. And if people want to get involved, uh, you can go to beanartshero.com and find toolkits and, and, and letter templates and ways to contact your lawmakers to push for a, a myriad of, of different um, a bunch of different uh, bills and uh, a lot of legislation that is, you know, that is that is out there that people can be advocating for that just hasn't been signed signed into law yet. So uh, for, all of that. I was gonna say for people like me who are still in high school, are we able mm -hmm. to still just do that same kind of thing that yeah. an adult can do? I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can. And for anyone who isn't a voting age, you know, there is still so much you can do. Uh, we did it. We did a. a a campaign for young people. It was called Arts Are My Superpower. And it was for um, like grade school children yeah. to write to the lawmakers and say, this is why um, the arts are important to me. And this is why I, I want, I, I, we need your help to, to give us a future that, that we can, that we can uh, participate in. Uh, because if the arts and culture sector, you know, uh, completely becomes a black hole, then there, there's no future for our young people of America to become arts workers to contribute to the creative economy as you know as as ticket buyers as patrons etc um and that's a, a devastating loss economically um uh, you know and that's what matters the most to our lawmakers is that's a loss economically so yes you can get involved and there there's it's as simple as tweeting a tweet tagging your lawmakers writing a letter uh calling them and advocating for, spe for specific wants and needs. So there are many ways you can get involved even if you're not a voting age yet. And even so, um, to start educating yourself so that you know that when you can then, you know, can then, can then vote, um, that you understand what you're voting for and you understand who you want to keep representing you in office so that they can um, take care of the communities that you're a part of and, and then keep our, keep our 
our, our creative economy afloat and keep all of our workers alive and thriving. So yeah. yes, you can get involved. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's just amazing what you guys are doing since like we're, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it's like the arts, whatever. It's like, it's not important, but it's like when people who are essential workers, you know, you go home and what do you do? You turn on the TV and you watch people on TV or like the movies or anything. And like, those are people who are working. Those people have jobs. You're helping contribute to the economy by watching it, by having like a Netflix subscription or any yeah. other thing like that, or just supporting, you know, you're supporting the arts in a way, if you're on social media, really yeah. any way like that. And so just really focusing in on making sure that we're seen as the work we do is important. I mean, people are like, oh, you do show. It's like, that's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean I was in a production of like the little mermaid that was like my first like community bigger production and I had never done anything like that before mm -hmm. and it was a lot of work I had to you know not I didn't have like a giant thing like to memorize as many lines mm -hmm. but like even just choreography and I was in like a production mm -hmm. of you know another community production where I was in like 10 different things I had to do like 10 different costumes and it's like yeah those things and where like the costume designers they're working as well and the lighting people and everything it all comes together and all has you know it plays into each other and it's like oh I don't know if you're frozen or not oh okay I was making sure <laughs> but just making sure like that we're all appreciated and I think what you guys are doing is just amazing and I want to keep you know supporting you guys and contributing and making sure that there is a future for the arts even though you know, that's not been the focus in the past two years as much since we're, you know, focusing on the medical heroes and all that kind of stuff, which my dad is a doctor, so I know exactly what that feels like. And just making sure that everyone feels like you're being appreciated and valued and like what you're doing matters. And I, you guys are just amazing. <laughs> and thank you. And thank you for saying that. And, you know, I think it is rewriting that narrative of saying the arts are essential if you just look at the numbers, if you just look at how we drive the economy of America, and I'll specifically talk about Broadway, Ashley. If you think about the reason why people go to New York City, um, you know, it's tour a tourism-driven city. Yes. People go to Broadway. So Broadway is a tank, right? So when Broadway was shut down for 18 months, even a little longer than that, it wasn't just all of the businesses that uh, that 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 uh, lift up Broadway, the costume shops, the, the lighting shops, the sound shops, the de design shops, the woodwork, the, the woodworking studios, it was, and, and all the performers, and all the staff, and all the administrative people and all the janitors who work in the buildings. It wasn't just that. It was then all the surrounding industries in New York City, transportation industry hotels, you're looking at restaurants, you're looking at retail, who are all lifted up and sustained by the tourism that's driven yeah. to New York City for Broadway alone. So when that ecosystem tanked and was shut, was shut down and we couldn't, we couldn't return to work because of government mandates, all of these other surrounding ecosystems that relied on us were then so devastated because we helped lift them up and we helped sustain them. So you know, I, I think it's, I, I will never stress enough. I will never stop stressing that uh, people need to understand our value and people need to understand how we positively or negatively impact uh, the ability for other uh, industries to survive and thrive. Um, it's all contingent on our ability to survive and thrive. 
And that has to do with making sure we get the relief and recovery um, funding that, that we, that we rightfully deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know for me, like if Broadway wasn't in New York, like I wouldn't have really a purpose to go to New York. Like I'll talk to other people like, what do you do if you're not seeing shows (laughs) besides, you know, like going to school or like doing things like that? Like what can you do? (laughs) It's such a driving force of New York and really what makes it New York. Cause like, even with LA, there is a lot of theater there as well, where people go to see Hamilton or things like that, where it's like that drives a lot of traffic to specifically Hollywood and like all the shops around there and all the stores and so yeah I don't know it's just such a fascinating thing to talk about I mean I'm sure you you and I could talk about oh for hours (laughs) I know and also while you while you were on that note Ashley to know that it is beyond even beyond because I think we think of arts and culture and we think of performing arts which is not to negate the work that we all do but to expand it and then realize a part of the creative economy is also fashion museums libraries publishing broadcasting bookstores you know so so much of the creative economy is not just the performing arts and we get so zeroed in on performing arts alone but look at these other industries that were that are that are that are that that also um make up the creative economy and how we need them you know people go to new york city for the museums Mm -hmm. so when those are shut down you know new york city starts to feel that devastation and it's pretty it's pretty profound and severe of an impact so yeah thank you for giving me space to talk about it of course and again just thank you so much for doing this podcast i've had so much fun thank you to everyone you know who will listen for listening to z podway we love brooke so much Um, (laughs) and we're just so happy that we got to talk to you before you go into your whirlwind of rehearsals and opening a new show and also if you're listening make sure to you know come check back in with broadway underscore corner for when brooke does her takeover during the run Yay! <laughs> i'm so excited for that and just thank you so much for listening and we're brooke ishibashi <laughs> thanks everybody we'll see you soon see you soon on broadway Yay! <laughs> <laughs>Hey, thanks so much for listening to Z Podway. Remember to follow Brooke on Instagram as well as us on Instagram at Z Broadway. You can also check out our website at zbroadway.com. See you next time.